part of the poem goes, now that he is safely dead, let us build monuments to his name. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from New York City. Monday is Martin Luther King Day. As iconic as Dr. King continues to be in religious and social justice circles, it's remarkable that some of his most powerful messages have been hijacked and repurposed by forces in no way supportive of his agenda on racial or economic justice. So it's more important than ever to go beyond holiday platitudes and remember the real MLK Jr., which my guest is eminently equipped to do. The Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III grew up with parents who worked closely with both Martin Jr. as well as the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. And some of the essential teachings he absorbed are prominent in Otis's brand new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. On this week's show, we'll explore both the book and the living lessons of Martin Luther King Jr. We'll also get some thoughts on Dr. King's legacy from Rabbi Sharon Brous, founder and senior rabbi of Ikar in Los Angeles. And I'll be offering seven ways to be sure someone's a Martin Luther King Jr. kind of Christian. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping keep these conversations heard by people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my first guest. The Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III has long been a prophetic voice for the marginalized and a clear challenger of the marginalizing. The longtime senior pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago is one of the country's most renowned and beloved spiritual and civil rights teachers. Reverend Moss has just published his latest book titled Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, and I'm delighted that it brings the author back to State of Belief Radio. Reverend Dr. Thank you for being with me today on State of Belief. It's my pleasure. It is wonderful to connect with you again, <laughs> Reverend Paul. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we are here on a special day because you have launched a new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. I'm so glad to celebrate with you. Uh, it is a major contribution. Tell me about, like, why did you decide this is the book for right now? Well, first, again, thank you for allowing me to be a part of the conversation. We're excited about this launch. This book really is a culmination of essentially my uh, spiritual and theological beliefs and the need for our democracy to link love and justice together so that mm. we can produce, or if it was a 
algorithm, love plus justice equals transformation and liberation. And, and I believe that if you nurture those two values, we can see major shifts in, in our democracy. That's how it happens. I wish you were in charge of Twitter. I mean, we need, if you have algorithms on the mind, we could use you. We could use you in other places. Talk to me a little bit how, about how that works because we all fall in the trap of having social justice over here, personal love over here. And, you know, we do our thing over here and then we do our thing with our personal people. And this seems to try what you just are saying, link those two together, that justice and love are in the same family. And I'd love to hear more about how how you came to that realization, where that comes from from you and how we can do that practically in our lives. That's it's a great question to to frame it that way. Within uh, the um, American context, we 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 separate these two. Uh, love is a very personal uh, idea, uh, a very quote unquote sappy idea, but it's it's one of the eternal values that that humanity has been uh, wrestling with. There are more poems, there are more songs, there are more pieces of literature that have been written about how do we achieve love, not in the uh, the arrow sense, which is connected in the Greek erotica, uh, but in the agape sense in terms of how do we live out the love of of God. And it is through my relationship with 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 my family and my faith uh, and what I call the uh, black spiritual tradition that the idea of love and justice has always been a centerpiece uh, for for our tradition. I learned long ago that love from my father, love without justice is just sentimentality, justice without love easily becomes brutality. Hmm. And so the two have to be merged together. And these are the values that we don't lift up in our democracy. We don't lift up in our policy. And with love and justice, you then raise questions about restorative justice. With love and justice, uh, you raise questions about how do we handle and deal with bringing people from the margin to uh, the center. And the primary spokesman and preacher of this idea has been Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who Mm. spoke about uh, the idea of the beloved community, a a community that is rich in love, compassion, justice, courage, reciprocity, respect. But it is also found within uh, the Jewish tradition of Tukum Olam, the idea of repairing uh, the breach. It is found within uh, the Muslim uh, tradition in the five pillars of Islam. It is found within the, the Buddhist tradition of alleviating suffering of Hinduism and, and Sikhism. Uh, all of our traditions speak to this uh, within the South African tradition. Desmond Tutu talked about Ubuntu, uh, that mm-hmm. your humanity is tied to my humanity. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, Yoruba tradition, uh, the idea of love is rooted in community, that if there is no respect, there is no compassion, and there is no accountability, love is not possible. Yeah, what you're talking about is deeply about community, it is about society, and it's imagining a different way that we can be with one another. And right now, with so much vitriol, it's really, really, like, it's refreshing to the soul to hear these ideas, because we can get very jaded, 
Mm -hmm. can get very cynical. And yet what you're saying is that this is this is a predominant value across the millennia and we have to reclaim it for our communities for the most local ways, but also for our national conversations about who we are and who we want to be. I'm just really interested you know I'm a fan, and I've been so interested in the way you use the arts. And mm. it is not lost on me that you say dancing in the darkness. And you've mm. done, you know, you have done things on jazz, music, the creative part of this work, that it's it's not the chore. It's actually there's something about dancing, almost like a defiant dancing That's joy in the midst of these turbulent times, as you say. So the, talk to me about the title. I just love that. Well, uh, thank you so much. The title comes from an experience I had with my daughter. The book is dedicated to my daughter and the audio version of the book. My daughter was in the studio with me and she reads the dedication, which I, I wrote specifically for her when she was small and our church it was around 2008. Um, I had become senior pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ, and the my predecessor, Dr. Jeremiah Wright, was was retired. He was he was out of the country actually, and I was working out one morning, and I'm on the treadmill doing my warm down, and someone taps me on the shoulder and says, "Hey, Moss, is that your church on TV?" And I look up on the monitor, and Sean Hannity is absolutely going off on Trinity United Church of Christ. And I said, oh, I've got to leave. And thus began a year-long um, experience going through the gauntlet. 40 outlets every Sunday showed up to church, cameras and microphones, uh, shoving these cameras and microphones into the face of anyone who walked into the church to get a quote because a member of Trinity was running for president, uh, Senator Barack Obama now, President Barack Obama. And we started to get death threats. Mm. So Dr. Wright received death threats. I received death threats. The church received death threats. We had to hire bomb-sniffing dogs mm. for every single worship experience. Um, it was just... At many points, it was just really too much. It was one of the one of the most difficult time periods in my life, and we hired twenty four hour security uh, for myself, for my predecessor, Doctor Wright, uh, at the church, and we always had someone sitting outside of our house for uh, like twelve hours a day. Would follow my children to school. The, the running joke with with my wife is said this was the one good thing I could let them go outside and play it. I really never had to worry about anything because there was always a security guard mm. uh, outside. Um, but it was one night that we heard something in the house, and my wife uh, said, "You need to check that out." I said, "Okay." I, so I grabbed my rod and my staff that comforts me, uh, which was a Louisville Slugger, and I walked around the house looking for where this noise was. And I heard the noise again near my daughter's bedroom. I go into my daughter's bedroom. My daughter is dancing. It's 3 a.m. in the middle of the dark. She's just spinning around. Daddy, look at me. Look, Daddy. Look, Daddy. And I had to preach in a couple of hours. It's 3 a.m. 
And I said with a stern fatherly voice, you know, baby, you got to get into bed. It's time to go to bed. And that's when I hear the spirit speak saying, look at your daughter. Mm. She's dancing in the dark. The darkness is all around her, but it's not in her. And she was dancing with utter joy. Pigtails are just flipping around. (laughs) And I scrapped my sermon ran to my study and start just writing some notes as quickly as I could of what was just flowing in my spirit. And the sun came up, threw on my suit, went to church, and I presented a message called Dancing in the Dark. I said that we have been called to dance in this moment, uh, to dance in, in this darkness. Even though the sun has yet to rise, it shall, if we continue mm. to dance in this moment. And the psalmist says... You have turned my mourning into dancing. And and I believe that this is what we're called to do in this moment in American history is we need people who are dancers, not the soldiers. We need the dancers and the poets and the artists. We need the mothers and the fathers and the elders. We need the activists along with the uh, the chefs and the cooks who can just make oh. some good black-eyed peas and rice uh, for those who are out there fighting. We need these people dancing if we're going to change the democracy. You are preaching to my soul. I am like, I got tears in my eyes, but I'm joyful about it. I, that Thank you for sharing that story. It's extremely moving. And it's exactly, you know, that that makes total sense that, you know, she's there, she's surrounded by this. And yet in her spirit, like you say, she's she's free inside because she has not let it subsume her. My guest is Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. His new book is titled Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. I just think this is so beautiful. Can you just bring us into just a few of the the morsels of lessons that are in this book that we can we can um, savor as we, before we go out and buy the book? And I encourage everyone, really, truly, you must dancing in the darkness. Spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times. What are some spiritual lessons that you think are at the top of the list that? Um, Every all, all of us should really take to heart right now. Well, one uh, in, in one of my favorite chapters is called "Rework Your Origin Story in Order to Become Your Spiritual Superhero." Uh, I, I'm a comic book nerd. Uh, I, I admit it right now. I, I love my comic books. Um, Ooh, I know you are. I know you are, and that is so awesome. It's just another facet. I that is just amazing. But yes, go ahead. Yeah, yeah we're going to talk I, about yeah, vision yeah, someday. We'll talk about vision. Yes, you gave yes, me the name Vision. We gave me the name of vision at one point, which I love. Okay, keep going. Keep going. It's perfectly for you. For those who are not familiar uh, with uh, vision, uh, vision is one of the few uh, comic book characters uh, that even though he is, uh, quote unquote, an android, he has a deep sense of reading uh, Reinhold Niebuhr (laughs) (laughs) and uh, has this ability to be able to examine so many different aspects 
of the human experience uh, from from his particular framing. And and so uh, Paul Rauschenbusch is, is has that <laughs> in the of pantheon of, uh, of 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 Reverend Dr. Otis Moss's uh, Marvel comic. But let's let's continue. You yeah go. I love this. The origin story, the hero mm-hmm. of your origin story. Tell yeah, me the, about the that. origin story. So, you know, in comic books, you, you have to, in order to understand a hero, you've got to know their origin story, that villains and heroes essentially uh, have the same origin story. When I say the same, they all have a moment of trauma in which they must decide whether they shall be a hero or a villain. And within the comic book narrative, that this is the 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 the, the pathway uh, to uh, being a hero. And I use in the very beginning to talk about some comic book characters that almost made a choice to be uh, a villain or someone mundane. Rick Grimes from Walking Dead said, "Hey, it's just about me trying to find my family." Uh, but later on, he realizes that. I want to help hold on to the morsels of humanity and civility for all that I'm that I'm encountering. And he becomes a leader. Uh, Storm in Marvel Comics uh, was a young girl who was basically using her gifts to be a thief on the streets of of Egypt until she finds this uh, prophet and sage in the Serengeti to say that, will you use what you've been given uh, to do great work? And so I tell the story of of Dr. King as a boy, of the fact that growing up in Auburn Avenue, even though he was in the midst of this Jim Crowism of the South that was telling him he was a second class citizen, three fifths of a human being, that uh, he did not have the intellectual uh, capacity to be able to rise above the lid that had been placed upon people of African descent in, in America, he walks out of his door. And I used to hear this story often that on one side of the street, you had middle class homes on the other side of the street. You had row houses of people who were domestics. He then turns left and walks up Auburn Avenue and passes by uh, an elder woman who is one of the only black women to own a funeral home, a business owner who had been providing money for young students to go to college. Then he passes by the Atlanta Daily World, the only daily black newspaper in the nation that was sharing stories about lynching, but also sharing stories about the power of HBCUs. Then he walks past uh, the Masonic Temple, and then he walks past Wheat Street Baptist church where uh, William Holmes Borders was the pastor who preached black theology before black theology had been framed by James Cone. He would stand at six foot four and he has an amazing sermon that he would close with entitled, I am somebody. And in that sermon, he would say, I am a poet in Langston Hughes. I am uh, a pilot in Bessie, uh, in Bessie Strong. I am a musician in Duke Ellington. And he would just go on and on. He said, I am somebody and you are somebody and you children in this congregation, you shall rise up and do great things. Mm. He was also the person who played Jesus in the Atlanta Passion Play. So Dr. King always saw Jesus as a six foot four black man with a deep voice. (laughs) (laughs) And then he leaves there and has to get on a trolley that is segregated. He has to get on the back in the back of that trolley. But his body is in the back, but his mind is in the front. And then he travels 
to Morehouse College, where Benjamin Elijah Mays was his mentor. Because of that experience, he reworked his origin story. So the story was not the story of a dying Confederate South, but the story would be of a yearning, beloved community. We must rework our origin stories and not allow victimizers uh, to define what our future will be. Mm. That do you? Yeah. So this is amazing. Do you give people kind of a step by step what the way they might think about their own story, or how do you? I mean, I, I, can you? Can you? I, I just think that this is so important um, and. How do we how do how do we imagine our story as part of a bigger story that is part of a great story mm. of of love and uh, and so I just think that that sounds so so great for you know but sometimes when we have origin stories of great men or great women we think oh that's of course they have this great story but I don't have a great story I'm just me you know and I think what what I heard there is is he probably thought that about himself. He did. He yeah. wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't born a great. He wasn't born Martin Luther King Jr. Who has a holiday after him. He had to be told, "I am somebody from the sermon," right. and that's in some ways what you're trying to tell people who are reading your book. You are somebody. You have a story. We can rework the internal origin story, right? And right. therefore, we can transform our collective national origin story. <laughs> right. Well, and you talked about restorative justice. I think that, you know, that's just a really incredibly important part and and something that um is just is almost a third rail for people to talk about, but it it is so important for us not to be afraid to talk about it. It's just it has to be part of where we're going. So interesting. Like we're in we're in a moment where you just see like this crazy divergence of the way people want to talk about our lives. We were just we just had Julian Zelizer from Princeton, whose new book came out the same week as yours, about the myths, the American myths about the lies that we tell ourselves. And there's mm -hmm. people who really want to tell these lies about America and they want to do it so they don't have to think about ways we go forward. And I just think it sounds like your whole life has been about how can we go forward um, as a nation? So I do want to, I, I, I do want to just take a moment um, to give my greetings to your parents who I had the honor of meeting uh, a couple times at Chautauqua. They are, I mean, they are, they have just such dignity and grace and uh, are marvelous people. But but also have played a major role. I don't think everybody knows the role that your parents played with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., with so many of the other greats. Can you talk a little bit about your father and your mother and what they provided for you as far as creating a framework for you to be able to do the work you do? And as we think about Dr. King, we're coming up on the holiday of you know the recognition of his, of his life. What can we take from that crew that was not, you know, it wasn't just King. That's it was right. a whole, whole movement of people around King, you know, circle, circle, circle. And what, 
talk about your parents a little bit and what you what they've taught you and what they contributed to this book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Much of the book is is haunted by uh, the spirituality of, of my mother and father. My mother and father met during the freedom movement, the civil rights movement. My father uh, began uh, his his work in in civil rights when he was a student in the Atlanta University Center. He graduated from Morehouse, went to the Morehouse School of Religion, and became an architect and leader in what was called the student sit-in movement, uh, or more formally known as uh, the Movement for Human Rights in Atlanta, is what I believe what they what was the formal name of it, that desegregated Atlanta and expanded the Black electorate in Atlanta. Mm. Uh, eventually would lead to the election of the first black mayor in Atlanta uh, by the name of Maynard Jackson, who was a classmate of, of, of my father. Uh, that legacy would lead to the Georgia uh, uh, voter project led by Stacey Abrams and would eventually uh, elect uh, a classmate of mine, uh, Senator Raphael Warnock, uh, to, uh, to, to the Senate. And so he was a part of that student sit-in movement. And then uh, he joined Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And there he, he met my mother, who was the office manager of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She managed the office. My father was a lieutenant, eventually uh, became uh, was part of the board. And both of them shared and have embodied in on so many ways, this idea of deep commitment to human flourishing, uh, to love and to to justice uh, in every aspect. They in 1966, as they were planning uh, the Poor People's Campaign at an SCLC retreat in Miami at the Eden Rock Hotel, 1966, there was a surprise engagement party thrown by Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King for my parents and the entire brain trust of the SCLC is there. I've got this picture like sitting right over here of them at their, um, uh, their engagement party. So this is, this is a part of, of, of who I am is what I'm yes. saying. Yes. Uh, this is a part of, I deeply believe this, this is what's been shared as, as in my family, a part of our family story uh, and, and this, this, this deep commitment. And I, I truly believe that, the most difficult value for human beings to wrestle with is love. Mm. But the most rewarding is love. The most transformative is love. Mm. And the depth of love, when it is truly connected and not disconnected from its cousin, <laughs> from its, 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 its spouse, uh, justice, uh, something transformative happens and every moment that has been unique in human history has not been pushed forth by those who have power to send forth um soldiers but has been from the power of those who've lived out these ideals mm. we need to take another break but we'll continue the conversation with Otis Moss in just a minute. And later, Rabbi Sharon Brouse. Plus, seven ways to figure out if someone's really a Martin Luther King Jr. kind of Christian. If you miss any part of today's program, 
You can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all on stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. I'm joined by the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, whose brand new book is titled Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. You know, there's going to be a lot of, I I hate to say it, platitudes or even worse, like people misappropriating um, Dr. King. A lot, you know, a lot of people are going to send out little tweets and um, I, that must drive you insane. It drives me insane. And uh, but great, I, yeah. you know, I, 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 I just think that. So, so let's like let's not give airtime to that. But let's think about like what is what would be a proper um, way to celebrate and acknowledge Dr. King mm-hmm. um, in 2023. Well, there there is a poet quoted by uh, Vincent Harding, and, he, and, and part of the poem goes, now that he is safely dead, let us build monuments to his name. And most of the time when I speak on a, on a King program, I always use that quote because there's comfort in his death and there's struggle and tension and hatred in his life. So what are the things in which we must continue? The Poor People's Campaign, bringing together Black, Latino, poor, white uh, people, along with Indigenous, to go to Washington, D.C. to transform uh, the economic landscape and the social landscape of our country. Uh, the work of restorative justice. I'm fascinated that that people who call themselves Christians are not a part of this movement, since we love this guy named Jesus, who also was thrown uh, in prison and was executed by the state, didn't have uh, a, sp- a state-sponsored attorney, a public defender who was worth his weight and salt, um, and we lift up a person by the name of Paul who claims that he was imprisoned <laughs> and was set free. So we, and then we have, we lift up Moses uh, who was on the lamb uh, literally uh, because he had killed uh, an Egyptian, but yet God still uses him. So we have all of these instances of people redeemed. We believe in redemption when it's clean, but we don't believe in redemption in, in America after someone has served 25 years, mm. whether it's a nonviolent crime or violent crime, we still keep them imprisoned and say there's certain jobs that you cannot um, uh, you can have or participate in in certain places that you cannot live or, or vote we, or vote. Or, I mean, I mean, I feel that it is we should pardon after you have served your time. You have to pardon people in order for them to have a fresh start. 
Right. Yeah. Well, I th- I, I I think you've you've named a lot of things. I also think I'm curious. You know, I haven't looked at the whole chapter list. Spiritual lessons. I also just want to lift up what you and your church have done around environmental concerns in your community, which has not only, you know, there's there's economic hardship, but there's also these food deserts. And you are what I love about what your church is about. It's about the whole person. It's about the whole society. It's not saying your spirit matters, but I don't care what happens to your body. It recognizes how important those things are together. Do you, I just would love to hear a little bit about how that is also perhaps a legacy of King as he had an expansive view of what mattered in the world, which is the way people are living in the world and our environment that surrounds us. Thank you for asking that because we're we're very uh, thankful for the work that we've been able to do by the grace of God in reference to community building, community transformation. There are three principles that we utilize. Uh, economic empowerment, uh, environmental justice, and dismantling mass incarceration. For for any type of work that we do community-based, we renovated the uh, Carter G. Woodson Library on the south side of Chicago, which is a jewel uh, for our city. It's a regional library. has the largest collection of African-American literature in the Midwest, and it was falling apart. And we organize with our community to say that this is a this is a jewel. We we need this this space developed. And the city came back and said, we don't have any money. And when we had the meeting, I just simply asked the library commission, I said, so when is your next meeting? I said, oh, our next meeting, you know, we have the library meetings on, on Wednesday at such and such time. I said, thank you. So I just announced to the church, there's a library meeting on Wednesday at seven o'clock. I need you all to show up and I want you to be empowered with the information. And our church, I didn't show up. Our church showed up and the meeting was over at 759. I got a call at 805 from the library commission saying they wanted to meet. They met with us and they said, we we found money. We found $10 million. <laughs> the library. And, and and we said, well, that's nice. But but we have a plan that will empower the people who are in the neighborhood for the renovation. So you got to hire people who are returning from mass incarceration. It has to be a green renovation. And the people who are doing the contractual work have to become from this community. Uh, mm. We did the same thing for our, our church. We used that same pillar when we did the renovation of our church. Uh, we created a community garden, butterfly garden, uh, then connected with uh, farmers from Pembroke, African-American farmers, so that they could sell their wares right on the south side of Chicago. Then we went and bought 27 acres of land just on on faith and that we wanted to do from green from the ground up to use these three pillars. And we uh, were able to establish with Advocate uh, Health a, a primary health care center. Uh, now the second phase is on, on its way for housing. Uh, when we finish, we'll have health care center, housing, an urban farm, a wellness, uh, a wellness center. And uh, keep your fingers crossed, we will have a hotel. Uh, I know where I'm staying in Chicago. I mean, come on. That is amazing. Listen, this is, this is congratulations. It's, this is visionary work. This is like, you know, there are so many places that are like throwing up their hands and saying, Oh my goodness, what could we do? And instead what you are doing is saying, I see, I see, I see possibility. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think that's what I love, um, Doctor. Uh, I love the fact that you look around and you see possibility, and that's the message. The power of love is to actually have eyes that see possibility instead of um, instead of cynicism and decay. Um, and I think that means that you know we talk about. I think it's just really important as we think about you know Dr. King. You know, Dr. King did his ideas didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, he was right. a very, you know, he had a father like you had a father who was a religious man who taught him about Jesus and talking about love and about the power of that faith. What does it mean to love our neighbors? What does it mean to love our enemies? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are some these are some very beautiful it's so, it's so powerful what you're offering into the world right now. This book is a must read, and um, and I think it's it's a must read for any church that's trying to figure out what should we read this year that gives us hope. It's it should be for any community that's trying to find a new way forward. I think artist groups should read this. I just think that you know so so Reverend Doctor Otis Moss the third. Thank you for joining us. You know, happy Martin Luther King Day. Maybe it may it be actually a testimony and to his legacy, to his life, to his love, and may you, and and you are such an embodiment of his spirit. I think that you know, and again, your parents um, passed that down to you, and they we 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 wish them the best of health, the best of um, of of life right now. So thank you for being with us on State of Belief Radio. Well, Vision, thank you so much, <laughs> Paul, Vision, Rauschenbusch, uh, for allowing me to be upon this uh, this great dialogue and conversation. Last week, Rabbi Sharon Brous, founder and senior rabbi at ICAR, Jewish Community, was with us, offering encouraging and inspiring thoughts about the new year. And I took the opportunity to ask her for some words about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., With the national holiday honoring Dr. King coming up on Monday, we wanted to include those words on this week's show. So there is an incredibly beautiful coincidence of the calendar that that Martin Luther King Day always lands um, right at the time where in the Jewish calendar, as much as because we're on a lunar calendar, um, it you know, you, you can always, you always know what season certain stories will land in, but not precisely what week they are. But Dr. King, uh, the celebration of Dr. King always lands right at the beginning of the book of Exodus, right? As Jews all around the world are are reading the book of Exodus. And it often lands as it did last year at Parshat B'Shalach, which is the story of the Israelites finally reaching the edge of the sea and then crossing the sea Toward, uh, toward freedom with the mandate to go forward and build a just society, a counter Egypt in the language of Michael Walter, right? And uh, to build a society that would be the antithesis of the world of cruelty and callousness and exploitation that they came from. And instead to, you know, and instead build something that's full of love. So when these two moments coincide, it's extraordinary. And I, there, one of my favorite sermons of that Dr. King gave, which I think he gave first shortly after Brown v. Board of Ed um, in 1954, although he repeated this 
idea many times in many places was the sermon called The Death of Evil Upon the Seashore. I don't know if you remember this sermon particularly, but um, but he writes that when the Israelites witnessed the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the shore, they knew that it meant, he said, that evil in the form of injustice and exploitation cannot survive. And he said that there is there is a Red Sea in history that ultimately comes to carry the forces of goodness to victory. And that same Red Sea closes to bring doom and destruction to the forces of evil. So, so what he, I mean, what he did is that's so powerful is like takes the Red Sea as this metaphor for it's a kind of birthing moment in which something has to die for something else to be born. And that image from Dr. King became really the heart of my theology when I was a rabbinical student and first started to encounter it. And, and in so many ways, the fuel of my, of my spiritual life, of my political commitments, Dr. King's writings for me became, they were really the, what helped me realize that my commitment to social justice and to human rights, which I had since I was a tiny child. I mean, the first time I was exposed to real poverty, I was five years old and I saw I saw like real poverty and I was so sick over it. I mean, I, and I remember I said to my parents, how can we let people live like that? How can we let that happen? And so, and I, I, I had this developed this very strong sense of right and wrong and just and unjust. And I never thought to connect it to my Jewish commitments and to my faith commitments. And then I read Dr. King and I realized, Oh, like he's rooting his faith in narratives that also come from my faith tradition. And this is a faith commitment. It's because we know and understand that the evil and the exploitation of the enslavement in, in Egypt to my ancestors, that that shouldn't be in the world, that God stands on the side of the oppressed, that human beings are called to live with dignity and with justice and with love, and that we collectively have to build something better. And that that's not just you know, being a good liberal in America for me, that's about my faith. My tradition is thousands of years old and calls me into that battle for good. And so it's Dr. King's writings were very much at the heart of my own transformation yeah. when I realized this isn't just a political commitment. This is a theological commitment mm. and a mm. spiritual commitment. And, and then the more I read and the more I learned, the more I understood, like the more Dr. King's faith ended up fueling my own faith journey um, and, and, and challenge. So it's, this day, I, I have to say, this is, this is so wild that I've never heard that connection made that, that, that the, the, the day we commemorate MLK is the beginning is, is marked by the Exodus. I mean, you know, uh, uh, that moment in the Exodus story, that is, remarkable stuff. I think that is, and it's wonderful. It does. It shows this incredible confluence. And, you know, one of the books that uh, um, Julian uh, Zelizer, who's who's going to be our other guest, um, he wrote a book on Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel. And, and, you know, and that's another example of people really not having the same experience, but standing up for one another in that moment. And it's just, you know, it, it this is, uh, this is so amazing. So, well, thank you so much for that. I mean, that's a that's a blessing. We are going to take that with us. You know, I want to say even there even more so because because Abraham Joshua Heschel's yard site 
um, the anniversary of his death also occurs right at this moment of, of MLK Day and of the beginning of the book of Exodus. And so all, oh, wow. there's this incredible confluence. And, you know, you'll talk to you'll talk to Julian about this. Um, but one, I mean, part of Heschel's transformation as an American Jewish leader, you know, he came from Europe and he he fled the Nazis. His almost his entire family was destroyed and he took refuge in the United States. But he always felt like he was out of place here because could you imagine I mean, they, he was a remnant of the, um, his entire family and community decimated. And so he comes to this place and he's like, where am I in America? What's going on here? And then he hears Dr. King preaching the black church theology, the theology of the Exodus narrative. And he realizes, I also have a home here. My, that's mm. my story, he says, and it's our collective story. And so this Jew, the descendant of a, you know, of a long line of Hasidic rabbis from Eastern Europe who are dis- decimated, but he's the remnant that survives, is able to connect with Dr. King and this, you know, this mission to transform America, you know, and the association of, of Black Americans with Israelites, you know, this in, formerly enslaved people who now have the work of building a new kind of society, a democracy, let us say, you know, a society that really sees and recognizes and honors the dignity of every person. There's an incredibly profound connection here. And that leads Dr. King to go down to march from Selma to Montgomery you know, linked in arms with, you know, with Dr. King and with Ralph Abernathy and with the, you know, the heroes of that movement. And when he flies down there, when he gets on the plane from New York City, where he's teaching at JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary, my, you know, the place where I was trained. And he goes down to the South and he lands in the airport. And, uh, and he's greeted by a group of local rabbis who say to him, go back, go back to New York. We don't want you to stir up trouble here. Do you understand how anti-Semitism functions? We're barely holding on here. We don't want the Jews to be associated with this movement of rabble rousers. And Dr. K- and, and Abraham Joshua Heschel says, this is exactly where the Jews need to stand and, and goes and marches and links arms and essentially sets forward a paradigm of like, this is who we are in the world. This is our prophetic tradition. This is what Torah demands of us. And this is where we need to situate mm. ourselves mm. right mm. in the heart of the suffering and in the heart of the movement that's going to transform suffering into exaltation, into celebration. That's Rabbi Sharon Brous, founder and senior rabbi at Ikar Jewish Community in Los Angeles, California. A few years ago, when I was the religion editor at the Huffington Post, I wrote a column that received a great deal of response. The headline was, Seven Ways to Be Sure You're a Martin Luther King Jr. Kind of Christian. And I wanted to revisit that question today, here on the show. So here we go. Seven Ways to Make Sure They're a Martin Luther King Jr. Kind of Christian. To understand Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one should first look to his Christian faith which gave him the language, spiritual strength, and community to fuel and sustain his singular efforts for justice, peace, and freedom. Faith was at the center of his life. However, as we honor the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., it is worthwhile to consider the kind of faith that King embodied. Because there isn't just one kind of Christian, and not all faith leaders lead towards freedom. As King himself wrote, 
On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. Over and over, I have found myself asking, what kind of people worship here? Who is their God? It is crucial to remember the sad truth that while there were some Christians who supported King and his monumental efforts toward civil rights against poverty and for peace, there were many, many other Christians who either actively opposed his work or sat silently on the sidelines. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a certain kind of Christian with a family background, education, and life experience that led him to embody the prophetic tradition of Christian faith. On this MLK holiday, many Christians pay lip service to his ideas but fail to embrace his vision in their own faith practice. I recently reread Letter from a Birmingham Jail, which if you haven't read it or it's been a while, please read that most excellent piece of Christian prophetic theology right now. After King was jailed for peacefully demonstrating He wrote this letter in response to eight upstanding white pastors who publicly chided him for disturbing the peace in a local newspaper. Letter from a Birmingham Jail demonstrates that not all Christian approaches are equal. It reminds us that still today we need the kind of faith professed and lived out by Martin Luther King Jr. if we are to create a more just and living society. So, If you want to be sure that a Christian represents the legacy embodied by Martin Luther King Jr., here are seven questions to consider. I think these questions might work for other faith traditions as well. Number one, does your faith encourage an active and prophetic stance towards creating justice in the world? Or does it explicitly or implicitly encourage a complacency towards inequality here on earth with the idea that faith is more spiritual than social, and that it will all work out in the afterlife. King himself wrote, In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between sacred and secular. That is from Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Second question, does your faith affirm the fundamental dignity and worth of all people and reject any claims of superiority, either explicit or implicit, based on identities including race, religion, sexuality, gender, class, or nationality? King himself wrote, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Men, people. That's from the I have a dream speech. Third, does your faith encourage critical examination of the context and deeper meanings of teachings in the scripture? And is it open to continued revelation of eternal truths that come with new knowledge instead of a fundamentalism that idolizes the past? King wrote, My days in college were very exciting ones. As stated above, my college training, especially the first two years, brought many doubts into my mind. It was at this time that the shackles of fundamentalism were removed from my body. 
This is why when I came to Crozier, I could accept the liberal interpretation with relative ease. An autobiography of religious development. Does your faith promote nonviolence and believe that war is only to be used as a last choice or not at all? Does your faith confront and reject any teachings that might cause anyone to act with violence or incite rage or hatred towards others? In his acceptance at the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony, King said, Civilizations and violence are antithetical concepts. Negroes of the United States, following the people of India, have demonstrated that nonviolence is not sterile passivity, but a powerful moral force which makes for social transformation. Next, does your faith further interfaith cooperation and empower your ability to feel compassion for the suffering of those who are different from you and see the wider interconnected responsibility of the human family instead of caring only about and for those in your immediate group? In his I Have a Dream speech, King wrote, When this happens and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men, white men, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Next, does your faith promote social justice and equality as well as individual charity as both integral parts of the gospel. In his writing Beyond Vietnam, Time to Break Silence, King wrote, A true evolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And finally, is your faith grounded first and foremost in love? And do you believe that love, not dogma or judgment, is the defining characteristic of God? In his work, Loving Your Enemies, King wrote, Now there is a final reason I think Jesus says love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says loves your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love, is the power of redemption. So there you have it, people, the seven ways you can tell if someone represents a Martin Luther King Jr. kind of Christianity on this MLK Day. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can be a part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening 
and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.